0: Welcome to the Leading Real Change podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, an expert in workplace culture change. From my unique background in behavior science, public health, and community advocacy, I help corporate leaders with evidence-based individual team and organizational change to create thriving workplace cultures for all. In the Leading Real Change podcast, I interview dedicated and passionate change makers about their careers, how they lead change and what leaders can do today to make a difference, to build healthy, inclusive workplace cultures for all. I'm excited to share these examples of real workplace change with you. You'll learn about effective strategies that are working and how to overcome real barriers to change that challenge us every day I hope you'll feel inspired and more confident to keep leading change in your workplace. Please share this podcast with other HR, DEI or ERG leaders who you know are working hard, but are struggling to have an impact and need more support to effectively create a thriving workplace culture for all today.
1: I'm Alex Budak. I'm a husband. I'm a proud dad to a two-year-old. I'm a faculty member at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. I'm a social entrepreneur. I co-founded the venture StartSomeGood.com, and I'm the author of the new book called "Becoming a Change Maker." And outside of my work as a change maker. Uh, I love travel, adventures, I've been to 39 countries and counting, and I am a diehard UCLA Bruins basketball fan. When I was a student at UCLA, I spent all of my winter quarter camping out for UCLA basketball games, and as my transcript will show, I definitely did spend a lot of time camping out, but made a lot of great friends and have a lot of great memories cheering on the Bruins.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Yes, March Madness will be upon us before we know it. (laughs) And I'm impressed by the number of countries you've been to there. I consider myself a bit of a global citizen because I have lived in about eight different countries, but visiting 39, that's impressive too. And so tell me, where did this journey start? When did you get inspired to be a change maker. Because for me, I was 10 years old, and our school, because of this sort of international working life that my parents had, I was at boarding school, and it was the same time as we were electing a new prime minister in the UK. So the school had its own elections and I stood for prime minister for the day and won because I didn't follow the political parties. No school rules for the day (laughs) was my soapbox. I feel like that was when for me it started. So tell me a little bit about your journey to becoming such a leader of change making and and a change maker
1: yourself. Well, I guess for me, it also had a couple of early childhood experiences that shaped me as well. The first is that I grew up in the Silicon Valley Bay area. So I grew up in the big tech boom and really surrounded by a lot of entrepreneurs in many ways. I didn't know that wasn't how a lot of the world thought. And so the sort of entrepreneurial streak, I think, felt very natural to me. So on one hand, I had that. On the other hand, I've always loved being in leadership positions, not because of a title, but because of the opportunity to serve. So all throughout high school, I served on our student government, and perhaps part of it was just because I could come up with clever campaign titles. So my freshman year, it was I Back Budak. Second year was I'm Back to Back Budak. Third year was I Still Back Budak. And then my senior year was Back to Back to Back Budak. So I guess when you have a good rhyme like that, you've got to run for student council. But that sort of introduced me to the idea of servant leadership. But I still didn't really have a strong why. So I liked entrepreneurship, I liked leadership. But then it all changed for me when I spent some time living and working in Ahmedabad, India. So while I was there, I did some volunteer work with a group that supported girls from the local community, and they used sport as a tool to teach healthy habits and leadership. And this is far from a a white savior story. It's not getting very much of import with them anyway. It was really about the local leaders. But as I worked with them, I had this aha moment, this light bulb moment that I had always seen entrepreneurship as something interesting, but it wasn't until then that I actually saw social entrepreneurship. I saw how you could combine the tools of entrepreneurship with a lens for making the world a better place. And that's where I realized, okay, I had my why. At the same time, I also realized that I was so inspired by this girls sports group in Omnibod, and I recognized that if they're here, there's got to be change makers all around the world, people who want to make a difference in their communities and the lives of those around them but just too many barriers getting in the way. And so in that moment, and I would reflect on this as I would walk the path back to where I was staying after our practices. And I just reflect on how could we create a world that's filled with and led by more change makers? And that's really what catalyzed the rest of my professional and academic career.
0: That's so fascinating. And I agree, I had similar experiences of then becoming a leader and very much in the situations that I've been in as well. It's really about empowering others to change. I always knew that to a certain extent as a researcher, particularly in say a prodigious university, locally it had some standing. But I always knew that when the stories actually came from the community themselves, when the leadership came from the community itself, it was so much more powerful than anything I could do. And we would talk about trainings that we would do to help develop some of the skills so that people could step up into these leadership positions. But we actually always admitted we were learning more than our communities (laughs) in this process because we were learning exactly what it was they needed. I very much see that journey. And for me, actually, (laughs) despite my sort of hesitance now as an entrepreneur, my first career out of university was in advertising. After that, when I realized that I really enjoyed working on more of social good projects, for example, we had a local zoo that was one of our clients and we did advertising for their endangered species and that felt really good to me and so then when i actually went in and did a master's in exercise and health sciences because the same as your community in india there sport and health was really important to me and was something that I thought we needed more support within the world. And then I came across social marketing. And so I was like, oh, this is what I can actually do. I can use some of these skills to actually persuade people to do good. And so that's really been my journey. So interesting to have some echoes there as well. So tell me then a little bit about what you learned along the way that then resulted in you really understanding what it took to become a change maker.
1: I think one of the shifts that I made is that I felt like, okay, I want to have an impact. And it seemed like being a social entrepreneur was an amazing way to go about it. But I also quickly realized that not everyone should nor can be a social entrepreneur. Not everyone has that same risk tolerance. Not everyone has that same skill set. And speaking as one myself, social entrepreneurs can be a weird bunch. And so I started thinking that often the way we talk about having an impact can feel quite limiting. You've got to go big. You've got to do grandiose things. But I realized that not only not inclusive, it's also not the way that the world works. I come from Silicon Valley now where we have a bad habit of something called heropreneurship, where we tend to like to put the lone entrepreneur up on a pedestal and say, ah, look what they did. But the more that you work in startups, the more that you work in change efforts, just as you found, it's not about any one person. It's about a team. I believe that change making is a team sport and we do our best work through and with others. And so I think... The most important transition I made was to shift from what can one individual do by themselves to instead starting to think about what can we as a collective do? What can we do when a bunch of us feel activated as change makers? And especially when we can work on challenges and issues together in our own different ways, using our own unique skill sets, but towards a meaningful and collaborative goal. And that's, I think, a really important shift that I made both for my own identity and for the work that I want to do, from the lone social entrepreneur to the collective group of changemakers.
0: And I agree, that's so important, this collective and diverse. Input That we actually need to make the best change. And also, from my perspective from behavior change science too is, I think we do our best change efforts, when we have social learning opportunities, when we have the group dynamic, not only just because of the additional numbers. But also because the process of learning, when we actually get feedback, hopefully also positive feedback and reinforcement, when we are doing well, these are all keys. Like when we try to do change in isolation, often our change efforts fail. But let's just stick on this before going into the ways you're trying to shift people to think about socially good teams, let's talk a little bit more about that prevalence of still being the leader of organizations, the burnout that social entrepreneurs can experience in that role, and that feeling of kind of responsibility of having the world on your shoulders. What's been your experience of seeing that, and how do you help people shift away from that. Obviously, if they have a severe burnout, that's potentially something they're going to have to do. But what's your experience moving people towards the benefits of the team?
1: Well, I teach about burnout. I write about burnout. And the reason that I'm so passionate about it is because I myself got burned out. It's still hard to admit, but I co founded Start Some Good, which was a global crowdfunding platform helping early stage social entrepreneurs get started. And it was my first really meaningful job that I had after graduate school. And it was a dream come true. It's exactly what I felt like I should be doing. But as I got into it more and more, now that I look back, I had all of the signs of burnout. I remember that friends would ask me, Hey Alex, how are you doing? And my answer would literally be something like, oh, well, start some good, got a new partner today, so I'm doing well, or bad revenue day, not doing so well. I had become so inextricably linked with my organization that I couldn't see my way around it. I had started wrapping up my own identity as the start some good guy, not as Alex, not as the son or the friend, but as the social entrepreneur. And it's something that I see so often in the change makers that I work with is leading change is really hard. And so to go into it, you've got to be all in, you've got to really care. And especially when it comes to solving big pressing problems, whether that's climate justice, racial justice, mental health. We care so much and we really want to have that impact. But it reached a real low point for me when I was living in Sweden at the time and I was traveling with my then girlfriend, now wife, Rebecca. And We were in Budapest and had this wonderful weekend ahead of us. And meanwhile, I was also trying to coordinate the launch of a new addition to our start some Good Platform. And anyway, we were working with a developer, and I really should have spent more time doing QA, checking things out, but I was just so exhausted. So I just said, yeah, looks fine. Let's just do it. So we launched this new feature, and it completely brought the site down, crashing. There was Rebecca who wanted a weekend with her boyfriend and there I was just bringing down the site I cared so much about all because I was just so exhausted. I wasn't thinking clearly. I had quite honestly lost the forest for the trees. And so that was the moment that I realized I'm so burned out that not only am I not doing myself any favors, I'm also not doing my organization any favors. I'm not the leader that it needs right now. And so that became my wake up call towards burnout. One of the things that I learned deeply from that experience is that I think the way we talk about resilience is wrong, that we like to talk about resilience as just enduring as much pain as possible, that it's, oh, this is going to just be terrible, but just keep going, keep going. Don't even think about it. Keep your head down. Keep going. But I think that's a broken definition of resilience. Instead, the one that I teach about and I write about is remaining strong for the long haul. That it's not about just what do you do in one day or what do you do tomorrow, but it's how can you stay committed to the changes, not just this week, but next month, for a year, for five years, for 10 years, for 20 years, because that's the type of scale we need to think about when it comes to leading change. And that's the way we need to think about preserving our own best asset, which is ourselves.
0: exactly preserving that energy for the long haul. It's very much a marathon, not a sprint. And I also think, too, that pain no gain, unfortunately, I was reminded of it again recently because it did come from our prior governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And yes, that might have been how he succeeded in his muscle building career. But again, I have many connections still with folks in sports psychology, sports physiology, because that was some of the background I came from. And actually, we're seeing athletes are doing so much better When they incorporate more rest into their regime. But unfortunately, these sort of mental models we have still exist. So yeah, I agree. We have to also understand that burnout is is not the absence of engagement or passion, because again, there's definitely Some debate in the research literature about the opposite of burnout is engagement, but actually there are so many people who still remain engaged in their work, are passionate about their work, have purpose in their work, but they experience burnout because they just don't have the perspective or the strategies to be able to preserve their own energy for the long term.
1: Yeah, that's right. And of course, my sample size here is biased because I work with change makers, but the sense of purpose or meaning is not something that change makers lack. If anything, it's that drive that they have to make change that leads them to ignore some of the burnout signals. And so I think it's important we take that well rounded and fully featured approach to understanding resilience and burnout. Exactly.
0: And I do think the first part of resilience is asking for help. That's definitely one of those first steps that we need to make. But I do also think purpose is something that can be missing in workplaces. So, outside of this sort of purpose driven change maker model, definitely that purpose is something that can bring energy. And often there is a disconnect between workers' sense of purpose in terms of, yes, there can be a mission statement and perhaps even corporate values, but what does their work day to day do to improve the lives of the people around them? them or their customers, often that connection is missing. So it is part of understanding some of the things to prevent burnout is that purpose. Okay, let's talk a little bit more then about what would be your guide to becoming a change maker? How do you teach it? And is it that you do have to have arrived with something special in the first place to start on this journey? Or have you also seen change makers appear or <laughs> come out of something that you hadn't necessarily expected?
1: Oh, you absolutely do not have to show up ready to know what you want to do. You don't have to show up with your idea of change or your plan or any of that. And so I teach a class called Becoming a Changemaker at UC Berkeley. I created and teach it as a class that I wish I could have taken when I was beginning my own changemaker journey. When I teach undergraduates, I teach graduate students, and I teach executives as well. So everywhere from 18-year-olds to 60-year-old CEOs. And so we find a diverse array of people. We meet them where they are, but each and every one of us can be a changemaker. Perhaps I'll start by sharing my definition of a changemaker. And so I define it in a radically inclusive way this goes back to what we talked about earlier about sort of my transition from the social entrepreneur to each of us being agents of change. And so my definition of a change maker is simply someone who leads positive change from wherever they are. And so you'll see in the definition that there's no mention of roles or of titles, because I believe that each of us have a claim to that identity, whether that's an entry-level product manager, a middle manager, or a Nobel Prize winner, that each of us can lead change from where we are. And further, it's an inclusive identity that we can layer on top of our existing identities. So you could be a changemaker lawyer, a changemaker chef, or maybe a changemaker partner, or changemaker parent. It's a way of seeing the world around you and your role in shaping it.
0: And so then how do you then teach and take people through that process of making an impact? Because again, I think that's even one of the things that seems to be up for debate, which is as individuals, we can only control what we can control. And I've always believed, no, we can change the world. And to be honest, we're highly influenced by so many parts of society and our our friends, our family, our workplaces, all these things influence us. So yes, we can also influence them in return. So then how do you actually move people into having the skills to have an impact, a positive impact on others?
1: yeah, we go through sort of three distinct steps. You can think of it a bit like a pyramid. So we begin with the base of the pyramid, and that's what I call a change maker mindset. That's your ability to understand the world around you and your role in shaping it. Here to talk about a change maker mindset, I'm really inspired by the words of poet Amanda Gorman. She wrote the poem, The Hill We Climb, which she delivered at the inauguration of Biden and Harris. And I think the final three lines are a wonderful embodiment of what we mean here by the changemaker mindset. She says, for there is always light if we're brave enough to see it, if we're brave enough to be it. The idea that there's always light, that tomorrow can be better than today. It's not pretending that things are perfect or that there aren't real systemic issues that we're facing but also a belief that things can get better, for there's always light, if only we're brave enough to see it. Oftentimes, being a changemaker requires having vision. We sometimes think that vision is relegated to the office of the CEO or the executive director, but no, I think each of us as changemakers can have vision. It's the ability to see things that others may not see quite yet, or maybe a status quo that needs to be disrupted, a system that needs to be changed. And then that third part, if only we're brave enough to be it, it takes courage to be a changemaker. You've got to be willing to stand up and say, look, I don't know exactly the answer here, but I'm willing to try. I'm willing to give it a shot. Let's figure this out. It's worth our time. It's worth our energy. That takes courage. And I deeply appreciate the courage that I see in changemakers. So we begin with that base of the pyramid, that change maker mindset. We then move to that middle section. And that's what I call change maker leadership. So we've talked already that you'll do your most important work through and with others. So collaboration is core to being a changemaker. Here we talk about how you can learn some of the 21st century leadership skills, things like leading through networks, leading with purpose, and how you can learn to influence even if you don't have formal authority, a concept I call micro-leadership, which breaks leadership down into its smallest, most meaningful unit, which is simply a leadership moment and then from there we move to that third part which is change maker action the top of the pyramid i am not a mathematician i'm quite bad at math and so i only teach one equation in the entire semester and it's this i call it the change maker impact equation so simply says that your impact as a change maker is equal to and you can visualize this parentheses it's your change maker mindset plus your change maker leadership so that's in parentheses multiplied by your change maker action so it doesn't take a great mathematician to know that when you multiply a number by 0 the result is zero so the lesson here is that even if we have a great change maker mindset even if we've got great change maker leadership skills if we never take any action with it we can never have any impact as a change maker and so this third part of the class is all about how you can learn to take action from where you are how we can make change feel a little less scary a little bit more approachable and what we can learn from fields like engineering and art and entrepreneurship to learn about those first, sometimes messy, but always crucial steps of turning ideas into action.
0: Yeah, I love that. And you're right. That change is scary and if we could acknowledge that a little bit more i think that would help us and also like you say it is messy it's almost that willingness to embrace mistakes and to embrace that sort of curiosity and experimental approach which is we don't know what's going to work this is what we're all about it's finding out what is going to work because usually there isn't also that silver bullet or a one size fits all, there'll be situations and groups and times where one solution works, but then it doesn't apply in another sphere or with another population or another time point because everything is changing all the time around us. So we have to acknowledge that. I love the clarity of that pyramid and that there is skills and mindset that it really leads to action. I quite often talk about that gap between intention and action being the grand canyon because pukeable can be in good intentions, right? For years, for decades. So, how do you help people cross that potential gap because of fear, because they lack skills? How do you help people move into action?
1: It's so common, even among the most effective change makers all of us, I would say, get scared with, okay, we've got this idea. How do we take those steps? It's something that professors Jeffrey Pfeffer and Robert Sutton from Stanford University, that they call the knowing doing gap, sort of you know what to do. But you don't know how to get out there and actually start doing it. And so in working with thousands of change makers around the world, I developed a tool which tries to address exactly this issue. I call it the change maker canvas. And if any of your listeners wanna take a look and download it for yourself, you can go to alexbudak.com slash canvas and download it. What is a tool be familiar to any of your listeners who have used something like the business model canvas before. And the idea is that we break change down from being overwhelming and complex into small, meaningful, actionable steps. We break it down into all the core things you need to think about before you launch a change initiative, whether that's launching a brand new company, Leading a change effort from within an existing company. We're just doing something in your kid's school or local community. So everywhere from helping you understand the why behind why you're investing your time into this idea, all the way to looking at the problem from all angles, from the core problem you're solving to also recognizing some of the root causes That allows you to go back to a bit of what we were talking about earlier, this idea of surface level changes, but also thinking about deeper systemic change as well. Also helps you think about who are the people that you'll involve in this change effort and how will you best engage them? And what I've found in using this tool with my students, but also with managers and executives around the world is that it helps us shift from change as a strategy question to change as an execution question, that you put the time in upfront to really understand the change, to break it down to these steps. And then all you're left with is, okay, I know what to do. I've just got to get started. And it helps make those first steps much more actionable and much more within your reach. Great, that's
0: such a great strategy. And I'm glad you have actually a tool to do that because I do think behavior change is much harder than we realize and acknowledge. And so, yeah, I think these processes of actually breaking it down and having real alignment with what it is, your why. And then for me, when I think about the root causes, I'm thinking about the common barriers that you're gonna face. And a big part of this is really recognizing those so that you can then strategize about overcoming them and particularly getting more support than we ever realized. We need support from accountability partners. We need support sometimes logistical or financial or motivational. But I think that's some of what we don't recognize is how much we do need help to create this action.
1: Super important. Actually, one of the blocks of the canvas is something I call Plan for Resilience. And that's where instead of waiting until you put this thing out into the world and thinking, oh, what are the things that be helpful for me here when the inevitable roadblocks come up? It's actually spending time up front to think about what will some of the challenges be? What are some of the potential failure points? And then what am I going to do proactively to try to overcome that? And so you might recognize, look, this is going to be really lonely doing it by myself. So one of my plans for resilience is to build that community around me, to have friends that I turn to, build an advisory board earlier than I might think. Yeah, to be thinking about resilience before you even launch it is, I think, the right time versus to scramble once it's underway.
0: Exactly. Because there are often times when we can foresee these barriers and actually that's why we're scared as well. So it's so helpful. And I think what's so important about that, too, just to get a little bit into some of the scientific terms, too, as well, is one of the most important constructs that moves us from intention to action is this construct of confidence or rather more self-efficacy and really how we measure that. It's not, oh, I feel confident I can do this. It's partly, I feel confident that I can overcome the barriers that I'm going to face. So it's such an important part of developing those skills that we can actually do the behaviors when things get difficult. And again, we have a term from public health called relapse prevention, and you have to think about it because we are all going to struggle at times and be taking steps backwards. So it's anticipate that rather than seeing that as like a failure point, see it as expected and prepare for it. So I love these parallels.
1: Another parallel I see is one of the chapters of the book I call confidence without attitude. And the idea here is that as change makers, we often need to hold multiple polarities at the same time. For instance, we've got to have a sense of urgency. If we're working on a meaningful change like climate, we've got to take action, but also recognize that change can take some time. That's an example of polarity we need to hold. And confidence without attitude is, I think, another important one. I think to be an effective change maker, you've got to have confidence. You've got to have the ability to put yourself out there to say, Hey, I've got an idea to believe in yourself. And even if you don't know exactly what to do to say, look, I will figure it out or I'll find some way, but also we've got to have humility. No one wants to be working with a know-it-all change maker. And on top of that, to effectively bring others into your change, you've got to have a sense of humility. I think humility is one of the most underappreciated leadership traits. But I think the key here is that so many people get confused and they say, okay, I've got to be a little bit confident and a little bit humble, but no, it's actually the key to change making is you've got to be both at the same time, confident and humble. In the book, I tell the story about Gwen Yi Wang, who's a terrific entrepreneur. She founded an organization called Tribeless. So Gwen Yi Wang is the founder of an organization called Tribeless, and they teach emotional intelligence and empathy to teams, And A few years ago, by all outward measures, Gwen was thriving. She's based in Malaysia and she was on the cover of magazines and her organization had all of the metrics you want to see in terms of rapid growth. But as she looked around, she also recognized that not only was work not that much fun for her anymore, she's getting burned out. On top of that, she started realizing that she was not the leader that her team needed at this point. Gwen is a visionary. She's a product person. But she recognized that what the team really needed at that point was more of an operations person, a finance person, someone who just managed that smart scale. And so she made the very difficult decision in talking with her co-founders to take a step back. And so she actually fired herself as CEO, taking on instead a chief product role as her co-founder stepped up into the CEO role. And I love telling her story because I think it's a perfect embodiment of confidence without attitude. Tribeless would never have gotten where it is, were it not for her confidence. She had an idea, she had a vision, she built a team, she got other people excited about it, and she stood up there. But she also had the humility to say, look, I'm no longer the leader that our team needs. So many people aspire to positions of power and titles and they just hold on to it for the sake of it. She said, no, if I'm not serving my organization, I don't wanna be doing it just for the sake of it. There's someone else who could be more effective for the team. But here's where the confidence comes back in, because even in being humble, even in taking a step back, there's an incredible sense of confidence, an incredible sense of self-assuredness, a belief in herself, her own abilities, that she knew that this one world didn't define her, title didn't define her, and she would go on to do better things, and she had confidence even in stepping back. As it turns out, her timing could not have been better. She stepped back in February of 2020, about a month before COVID hit. And at that point, they needed to pivot to a virtual online environment. And she was well positioned as a chief product person to build that new online version of tribalists. But it all is made possible because of her ability to, at the same time, be both confident and be humble.
0: And that's so important. I I love that example too, of being the right leader at the right time. And one of my other guests on this season is Olivia Wagner, who wrote that book. And it really is so important for us to recognize that as a visionary, you may not be the best logistics person. So I agree, it's so important. But I think it also then really parallels into some of the, the ideas we've talked about in terms of leadership and cultural humility is definitely something I've been learning about recently from a book called Did That Really Just Happen? And reading your book and Olivia's book, I get so much inspiration from these books that are helping us think through these issues. And cultural humility is that you will constantly be updating your information and your skills. So it's about saying that long term culture is constantly evolving and that I need the humility to be. able to recognize what I don't know at any point in time, and to update my skills, my mental models, my language, etc. This sort of translates then, or takes me back into thinking about businesses now, because even though some of your focus is around this social good, companies now, I am seeing so many posts of companies saying, for example, in HR, they are now agents of change. And it made me think again, needing that cultural humility in the workplace and these other leadership skills in the workplace in terms of the energy for the long term. Tell me a little bit more then about how people who have never really necessarily been a change maker, who maybe haven't quite understood this process, how they can then start to step into that role and see the parallels if they haven't necessarily been as say a leader for social good and suddenly they've been anointed the person who's responsible for changing the culture of their organization for example what would you say to someone in that situation just to draw that parallel
1: It's a huge opportunity. And I've been doing more and more work with much more traditional companies. Many of them are feeling they need to pursue this because of the way Generation Z, as they enter the workforce, what they're looking for. A recent poll found that 70% of Gen Z only wanna work for companies that share their values, that feel like they're doing good into the world. And so even if you're from a more traditional world of business impact being separate, if you just wanna be able to attract and retain talent, And customers, to that end, you've got to start thinking about this as well. So I recently did some work with a mortgage insurance company, which is about as far away from traditional change-making as you can imagine. But I got brought in to help them find that sense of purpose and to work with a bunch of their middle managers to find meaning in the work that they do. One of the interesting problems that they had is that they had almost no turnover. And most companies would look at that and say, that's wonderful. People want to stay. But also, as a result, the culture had gotten a bit stagnant. It was, this is what worked for us back in 2010, so we'll just keep doing it. And if the last few years have shown us anything, it's that the status quo is not tenable. So going in, we really worked a lot on that change maker mindset and starting to see opportunities where others only see threats and starting to find ways that they can start leading change from where they are. It doesn't have to be a huge revolutionary change right away. It's about practicing those small change muscles so that we can build up the confidence to go bigger when the time is right.
0: I love that example. That's great. That's so helpful. And again, change starts with new skills. (laughs) That's where we have to really understand that part of that first process is building the new skills for us to be able to move into action. And I think it is so interesting. I was listening to a program yesterday on NPR all about the sort of the system that is corporate America and actually the social system at government levels, et cetera, really was designed by the boomer generation. And essentially, this is then this debate, which is how do we change that system so that it actually can now apply to people coming into it without, one, the same demographics, that generation was predominantly white, but also then the other changes that have happened in terms of the cost of housing, the cost of education, et cetera. So let's be thinking about a system since you've mentioned that generation. So let's think about then change makers as being able to change systems. Because I think sometimes people see systems as these machines that can't change. When we Give these terms of that's a systemic problem. It's almost as if we're then abdicating responsibility and saying, therefore, it's something I can't change. So, how do you see systems change, and how can change makers best change systems?
1: It's rare that I read a quotation that takes my breath away, but this is what happened when I read a quotation which is often attributed to Paul Betalden, a medical doctor. And the quotation goes that every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. So put another way, if you keep trying to change things and you keep getting that same outcome, what shows it's a system that needs to be changed. That system itself is value neutral, but it means that if you can't change the outcome, you've got to start thinking about how can we change some of those inputs and go even deeper into it. As a social entrepreneur, it's something I think a lot about, and I had the privilege of running an incubator for social entrepreneurs in Scandinavia. And a terrific example of this is a woman named Elin Roberts, and she ran an organization called Barn Rights Bureau, which essentially translates to like Children's Rights Bureau. So children in Sweden generally have really good human rights, uh, but not every child recognizes that they have those rights and especially so for children that have come over as migrants, especially unaccompanied youth. And so her organization set out to support these children to make sure their rights are respected. And so they do work in the social welfare model, reaching out individual one-on-one casework and so on. But they also take a systems lens. They realize that because they work with so many kids, they start seeing patterns. They start realizing where are some of these kids falling through the cracks? And then what they do is based on their knowledge of working one-on-one with children, they then advocate for policy and legislative changes at the local, municipal, and even federal level. They're able to make those changes because they see what's happening at the individual level. And I think that's the right way to think about change-making as well, is that ideally we do both. We're providing that direct service, we're providing the change at the surface, but also we're always thinking about what are the systems that we can change. What's one thing we could do that if we get it right, would then have outsized impact on future generations of folks? And I think Children's Rights Bureau is a really good inspirational example of how that can work at the same time.
0: Yes, it's back to that being able to see the trees and the forest at the same time. Because, again, we learn so much from these individual examples and people need help at the individual level. But if we then don't use that to create population level prevention, yeah, it's such a wasted opportunity. So yeah, I love that example as well, especially having one of the countries I did live in was Sweden. And I remember that difference when we were there of understanding those rights. And it's also an interesting difference to here in the US because the rights that people have are such a strong element of society here and we don't have those same rights in the UK. So there are definitely sort of cultural differences around these types of understanding and foundations of countries. So as we just wrap up here, tell me then or to inspire our listeners because there's definitely many listeners there who are... Potentially choosing to leave corporate America, in particular, we have for senior women leaders, really large amount of women leaving the corporate workforce because they're not seeing change and and they're frustrated and burnt out by the status quo. So if someone is then taking that step to create a different system and an alternative vision, what would be your advice?
1: My advice is that the world has never been more ready for you. There's never been a better or more important time than right now to step up and to lead change. It's never been more important that each of us see ourselves as agents of change, but it's also been never been more significant when we think about the trends shaping our world today and the important changes that our companies, our communities and our world need. It's a world that's calling out for change makers, And so I hope that you will hear that call. I hope that you have the confidence to step up, the humility to say, I don't even know exactly what I'm going to do, but I'm going to step up anyway, and that you'll begin seeing yourself as a changemaker. The world looks so different when instead of waiting for someone else to give you permission, you give that permission to yourself. And so to remind you that the world has never been more ready for you, and I cannot wait to see what you do next.
0: Thanks so much for listening today. I hope the podcast brings you fresh ideas, renewed confidence, and energy to keep leading change. If you need a partner in these efforts, I can help you effectively build a thriving workplace culture for all. I'll help you overcome the real barriers to change you face every day and help you lead real change with evidence based solutions. In particular, I want to work with passionate leaders who have tried, and failed. Because I know you have what it takes, and your experience will help you clearly recognize the difference I can make. For a free consultation today, please visit my website at www.leading-real-change.com. That's www.leadingrealchange.com.